0: So welcome to the first collaboration of the Geek Therapy Podcast with the Chicago School of Professional Psychology's Geek Culture in Therapy course. Uh, my name is Oswe Cardona. I am the founder of Geek Therapy. I am a licensed clinical, prof- uh, licensed clinical counselor in North Carolina. And with me are Patrick O'Connor and Chris Ferguson, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves and we're going to have a, an awesome conversation about video games and
1: mental health. My name is Patrick O'Connor, and I teach geek culture and therapy at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, and this is a course where we cover um, research on video games, uh, video game addiction, video game violence, uh, the utility of games and how games can be helpful in and strengthening in people's lives, as well as uh, we look at comic books, superheroes, uh, uh, Star Wars, you know, and other sci-fi franchises, and fantasy, and, and we talk about ways that we can speak the language of clients and and use what they're already into to help them uh, address some of their issues.
2: And I'm Chris Ferguson, and I'm a clinical psychologist and the department chair of psychology at Stetson University. And uh, I do a lot of research on uh, video games, including things like video game violence, uh, a little bit on video game addictions and other issues as well. And, um, And in my spare time, I'm actually an author as well, so I write a lot of science fiction and other speculative fiction, so this is my day job doing research on video
1: games. (laughs) Sweet, cool, cool. Cool.
0: Um, I know that uh, for Dr. O'Connor's course, you often have people as invited guests and they talk to your class live and we wanted to kind of try it out this way so we could keep it for posterity and then maybe talk longer than the time that you have in class. Mm -hmm. And so go ahead and get us started and uh, we'll kind of just see how the conversation flows.
1: Sure, yeah. I I have a question I wanted to open with, Chris, was um, around, uh, you're just kind of cutting straight to the chase, when you think about clinical psychologists of tomorrow and, and therapists and counselors and uh, working with um, kids, teens, young adults uh, who are playing video games, how important do you think it is that these, uh, that tomorrow's therapists be at least somewhat kind of versed on the research on uh, the, the video games that their clients are playing?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um... And probably a pretty complicated answer in, in the sense of, um, you know, certainly my own practice, it, it hasn't, uh, which I don't see a lot of patients anymore now that I became a department chair, in fact, by the way. But when I used to see families, I used to work with children and protective protect services and such, uh, uh, video games didn't come up a lot. You know, it would come up occasionally. Sometimes parents would ask sort of vague questions about, you know, is it okay if I let my kid play this game or, or whatever else? Um, but... Uh, it's a real complicated answer, and I mean, I think the one thing that clinicians and really everybody should be aware of is that whenever new media get or new technology gets introduced into society, it, it, they tend to go through these periods of rather extreme claims, sometimes in both directions, and, and we kind of can't see this with video games, that... Uh, uh, you know, obviously, we've we've had all the you know linkages between video games and mass shootings and other kinds of violence in society, or even things like bullying or aggression in kids and such. And on the other hand, you kind of have like the the Jane McGonagall, "Reality is Broken" kind of approach, where video games are going to kind of save the world, and see, it, sometimes even the same games that people are talking about, <laughs> you know, like the first-person shooters, you know, causing aggression, but at the same time making you smarter, for instance, and uh, I think for clinicians, obviously, families, parents are going to hear those stories in the news media, and some of them are probably going to come and say, you know, my 13-year-old boy wants to play Grand Theft Auto 5, or by that time, might be Grand Theft Auto 23, <laughs> whatever it is by that. Um, you know, is it is it okay? And again, that the answer to that really is kind of complicated. It sort of I means, you know, what do you mean by is it okay? Really, in the sense of you know, is it going to turn them into a mass murderer or a bully or make them more aggressive? Um, at, at this point, I mean, obviously there's a lot of debate on that issue, and, and you know, even among the scholars, scholars feel very differently about what the research says. Um, my own personal read of the research is at this point, for probably the typical kid, um, the answer is no, that there's really not much there to suggest that video game violence is going to have much influence on the majority uh, of kids. But, but I, I think I would put the caveat on, on that of, you know, but each parent knows their own child best, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it's hard to make you know, sort of global statements one way uh, or the other. And, and, of course, the other thing that I think, you know, I would say to a parent myself is that, you know, whether or not video games do or don't cause aggression um, it's still fine for parents to have a moral objection to a video game that may have content in it that they feel is not right for their family or that their child is too young for that and and that they should feel empowered to make those types of decisions you know and not necessarily have to base that on you know is, is the likelihood that it may harm or not harm um, your child um, i mean that's a question sometimes I get i, I have an 11 year old son myself and you know as someone who's pretty vocal for the most part in suggesting that our fears of video games have been overblown, people then will say, well, would you let your kid play a game where you can, you know, urinate on police officers and chop off the heads of prostitutes and all this kind of stuff? Um, and, you know, the answer is probably with something like Grand Theft Auto I probably know, uh, but not because I think that Grand Theft Auto 5 is going to, quote, unquote, harm my child, but just because that's not... Something that I hold as part of my values, or you know, the values for our family, and simply because I have a moral objection to something like that—that that, you know, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, let my son play something like, at least not at eleven. Um, you know, so I think parents can feel comfortable sort of making a differentiation between moral objections to certain video game content versus sort of harm or public health concerns. And I think that's where, as a society, we sometimes have, have messed things up or screwed things up and that we've really kind of had trouble differentiating between that. I mean, do some video games have objectionable content? Of course they do, I, you know, absolutely. Does that mean that that content harms us? Um, you know, I, I think the evidence for that is not very strong, you know, for the most part. But, so, so I think that's, that's kind of how I would approach things myself with parents who were expressing concerns about or, or at least had questions about video game content.
1: Sure, and I appreciate that you take that kind of complicated approach, as you mentioned, that, um, you know, I think that where parents sometimes would get caught up is when it seems like uh, news media tries to um, portray an answer as if, like, the research is conclusive, whether this study says absolutely yes or this study says absolutely no, and it's kind of black and white, and and that could be kind of um, either confusing or it could be, um, alarming, you know, to a parent of saying, like, well, I don't know how to make sense of this or this doesn't feel right, and and so, you know, yeah, coming to a therapist and saying, what should I do? What do you know? What do you think we should do? Um, yeah, I like that you uh, differentiate between the the moral objection versus the kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say empirical objection, but, you know, kind of being more information-based around, uh, well, typical kid, maybe not, but there are some risk factors here and there. And that was one thing, too, I wanted to mention was, um, uh, there was a, a study um, that you had authored uh, a few years back where you had um, examined the risk factors around teen aggression and if I recall correctly that you found that um, depression or uh, the crowd that teens hang with, uh, violence in the home are, have stronger, uh, stronger modifiers of teen aggression than playing video games, violent video games. And one message that I kind of take from that, I'm kind of curious what, what your thoughts are, is that as a therapist, you're going to be addressing depression, the crowds they hang with, uh, violence in the home, and, and coping with that. Um, those are the things that are in a therapist's kind of wheelhouse and their area yeah. of expertise and what they work with already. And so if those are going to be the things that lead to teen violence and teen aggression, we're kind of already working with that. The violent video game part is just it's kind of, it, to me, it feels like static in the background. Let's keep working on what we're good at and what we know about. What do you think about that?
2: Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. I mean, it actually, you know, it was sort of interesting that, uh, you know, in the research that I've done, actually one of the best predictors, at least of the variables that we considered, um, of violence and bullying behaviors in in adolescence was depression. Actually, and, and particularly not for all kids who were depressed, but a combination of depression with kind of pre-existing aggressive traits. So kids that already had, you know, maybe oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder or things like that who also had depression of that kind of combination um, seemed to be particularly predictive of, um, you, you know, problem behaviors uh, among youth, which is probably not terribly surprising for, for a lot of clinicians. but. Um, you know, so I sometimes make the kind of the joke, and maybe it's not, you know, maybe that's not something I should joke about, but uh, kind of the joke of if you have, like, a psychopath for a kid, make sure to try to keep them happy, you know, mm-hmm. if it's possible so that they, <laughs> they're less likely to, to act out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, mm-hmm. Obviously, it's, you know, making light of, for many people, a very serious situation. but mm-hmm. but it, and, and, of course, the issues of, of, you know, peers who are also delinquent or, you know, a parenting environment uh, in which the parents are, uh, aggressive with each other and it turned out that in particular psychological aggression in the family tended to particularly be uh, a predictor or a risk factor of uh, problem behavior and use. So it does seem to be that constellation of things that we already kind of know for the most part that uh, you know people that have anger and depression together tend to be more stressed, they tend to act out more often and they oftentimes come from these difficult backgrounds and that things like television violence or video game violence really didn't seem to add anything to that picture that uh, you know, there wasn't really much added predictive, well, really any predictive value above and beyond that uh, for these kids. And and that actually, you know, in a few different analyses that I've done with some colleagues, that, that, that turns out to be true not only for sort of like general population kids, you know, kids that are normal, quote, unquote, um, but also for kids who do have pre-existing mental health issues, so uh, you know, kids with ADD or kids with depression in particular, um, you know, we don't see any linkages between violent video game playing and bullying behavior or delinquent behavior in, in those groups of, of, of kids as well. Um, so yeah, so I mean, you know, in terms of you talking about the, the, the wheelhouse of, of clinicians, uh, you know, this issue of video games and television and all that media stuff doesn't really seem to add anything uh, to that. And other than again, sometimes parents will will have questions. Um, and, and again, it's not that clinicians have to say, oh, sure, go, you know, you know, watch Game of with Judy Kid, and, and let them play Grand Theft Auto V necessarily, but to some extent, the answer may be somewhat of a reassurance that, you know, this is probably not the biggest thing, um, you know, that you have to worry about in relation to other things that you have to, you know, to worry about. Like, like I said, I mean, I, I, I worked with a number of cases with Child Protective Services in Texas in particular. And I, I've not once was video games or television and at issue for either the parents or the, or, or the, or the kids there are always much more serious things that were, you know, going on in the family of origin, typically, you know, for, uh, for those kids that, that, that I was working with.
0: Sure. Okay. I have a, I have a real life example of that recently. I had a client who his mother comes to me and says, you know, I'm really concerned that my son is constantly playing video games. He's always in his room. And the kid, he did play a lot of uh, Call of Duty in his room with his friends online his friends from Mm -hmm. school and in a way to escape from uh alcoholism in the home domestic Mm -hmm. violence and they lived in a town that was you know in an area that was not very safe and she thought the video games were so bad that she was more concerned about that than all Mm -hmm. of the other environmental factors and she actually rather have him go outside Mm -hmm. and play in this unsafe environment than play with his friends from school online and i think that that's why it's so important to to, I think it's so important for us clinicians to be versed in this so we can have that conversation because I've met many clinicians who also believe the video games are the devil and I wonder what they would have told uh, that mother in that situation. You know, And, and mm. I took it as an opportunity to educate her on, listen, all these other things are are more likely to affect your kid in this way. He, the, the kid was very quiet and quite shy and reserved. He wasn't even acting out at this point.
2: Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think those are, are really... You know, great points. It's a really great example uh, of this. That uh, I mean, you know, as one of you mentioned before the issue of video game addiction, and that can be a separate issue, of course. That you know, if the if a child's video game playing behaviors are actually interrupting other life, you know, uh, responsibilities, they're not doing their homework, they're not going to their job if they have a part-time job, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, I mean, that can be a, that can be an issue, but. But that seems to be fairly rare among gamers, for the for the most part, to see that sort of uh, problem behavior emerge. And and as I mentioned, you know, we, we kind of got stuck in this idea in the research field of it's kind of like general effects models, the idea that violent video games makes everybody aggressive, and, and really this idea that media can affect people in a very predictable way. And I, and I think that and this is kind of why I said that sometimes you know we have to remind parents that they're really still the best judge of their own kids, and that you know, what I would say is, or what I might ask the parents is, you know, do you see any problems around their, you know, video game playing habit? Are they flunking out of school? Or, you know, are they, you know, not going to school? Or, or, you know, um, and in the absence of that, uh, as you mentioned, there may be some kids who are actually using video games to calm themselves down. There's some evidence that games, including violent games, can be stress-reducing and such. And so if you actually... Without thinking, take the games away. You may have actually removed a coping mechanism, you know, for, for some of these kids. On the other hand, it's also possible that some kids may you know, misuse games and may have problems around games. That's where you know parents' thoughts about games or reactions to them really ought to be sort of problem focused, or like a really a better way of thinking of it. and that, assessing are the games actually causing problems for the child, or do I just not like them? Uh, and if it's just a matter of well, I just don't like them, that's you know probably not something you want to intervene with necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think clinicians have to remember that there really is a big generational divide in the way that people perceive video games. And the cutoff is somewhere right around my age, actually. I'm about, about 43, uh, so probably around 45, 46, is around where that cutoff is, in that you know, people of my generation and younger grew up with at least the Atari 2600. So we were used to having games around all the time, whereas people a little bit older even did, just didn't have that. And so the, their perception of games is very. There's a very alien way of interacting with people. So a lot of people are still mired in this idea of video games are a solitary activity. It's the it's the you know overweight kid in the basement with the you know shades drawn and and he's playing by himself or with a bunch of strangers. And, and people don't always realize that it is a very social activity. Um, you know, for many people it is a very cultural activity, very stress-reducing activity, and uh, you know, just because, you know, usually it's older adults can't relate to that, you know, it doesn't mean that it's actually harming their kids or grandkids, um, you know, or whatever else. So.
1: And it could be clinicians,
2: through. too. I mean, you know, a lot of clinicians are older adults, too, and they may you not know, really understand them also.
0: Yeah, Chris, you're cutting out a little.
2: Oh, no. Oh, sorry. All right. How is it now? There we go.
1: Oh. Good? Yeah. Yep. Good. Sweet. Um, one thing I wanted to to mention was around <laughs> the... Uh, um, oh, no, I lost it. Uh, oh, the um, the solitary activity thing about, uh, about video games, where... Um, there's a, an image in a presentation I use that kind of shows how, like, the old way of gaming, and it shows uh, is this great picture with a Nirvana poster and these, like, jean shorts and, you know, these couple of guys with, uh, with you know, their uh, NES controllers, and and they're playing together and they're really intense, and you know, in the same room. And, and, you know, I talk about how if you wanted to play with one, two, three, or four of your friends, you all had to be in the same room together. And now it's, you know, if you want to play with 10,000 friends... It's not, like, it's not like you need a land party to get, you know, to connect with all these other people. It just looks like a person is alone in their room. And yeah. I think that if we go back not too long, a teen who spent a lot of time in their room on the phone wouldn't be looked at as, being, as having, like, social issues or anything. But because so many more teens are using, like, headsets um, and they're playing video games that the parents don't know that there's a strong social component to it, that it just seems as though they are isolating yeah. themselves when really it's the same as if they just stay on the phone with their friends or girlfriend or whoever, boyfriend, and just we're talking all hours of the night, you know? Um, it just looks different. I think it's similar kind of socialization, but maybe it just looks different today, and it can be a bit alien or, or uncertain to parents.
2: Yeah, it is very much that, you know, that generational divide um, that you see that... Uh, um, and actually, I, I just had done a, a research study. It's under review right now um, for a journal, looking at actually looking at clinicians and looking at their attitudes towards video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and you can even see that generational divide in clinicians, and that the clinicians who are most likely to be afraid of video games, or, or at least endorse the idea that they can be harmful to kids, tend not, it, it correlates with age, not surprisingly. They tend to be the older uh, clinicians that 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 endorse those types of beliefs. But, and the other thing was kind of interesting too is it tended to be clinicians, the other sort of big predictor was age and, and gender to some extent. You know, males were less worried than females were. Um, and But also uh, clinicians who endorse negative attitudes towards youth also tended to be more likely to believe in video games being harmful. So the idea that mm-hmm. kids today are more narcissistic than ever, kids today are less empathic, kids today get into more trouble, so on and so forth. You know, kids, uh, clinicians that endorse you know, those types of beliefs, um, you know, we're more likely to, say, video games, you know, cause harm to minors or violence in society and and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and and that kind of goes back to my my opening point is that, you know, we have to remember that all forms of media do tend to go through these periods of these moral panics and such, um, and that can really influence the way that even as scholars we, you know, discuss these, uh, you know, these types of issues. But, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, going back to your point about these activities being social, I mean, sometimes we have to remember that people have gotten together and gotten married after like meeting on things like World of Warcraft or even Call of Duty and and, and such. So, um, these are you know potentially highly social um, activities, and for many individuals, you know, who might have been shy or even had situations like having what used to be called Asperger's disorder which is now autism spectrum. Um, that these types of online interactions may really open up doors for a lot of people who may have difficulty interacting socially in, in, in the real world. And Again, even some research by a guy by the name of Kevin Durkin who's up in Scotland uh, you know, that finds for, again, particularly with autism spectrum disordered individuals that for many of them, being able to interact online really opens up you know, a lot of opportunities for socialization that... They would find you know anxiety provoking or just unpleasant um, in in real life. So there again, I think it becomes an issue that you know each generation kind of values the stuff that it got used to and has difficulty valuing or understanding new technology or new media that uh, you know a, a new generation is growing up with. So,
1: yeah. mm-hmm. hmm. I'm uh, I'm wondering as uh, as someone who produces a, a lot of research in the field um, if there's been uh, something, whether it's from your work or the work of uh, another researcher that you were particularly surprised at, um, whether, you know, a good kind of surprise or a bad kind of surprise, something that was, like, just kind of, you know, made you pause for a moment and think about it?
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. I mean, um, yeah, let me think about that a second. I mean, I think some of the stuff that's been coming up um, that's... Well, a few things, you know. Uh, one... Body of research that's being done recently—that is—I think people are kind of struggling to fit into or previous ways of thinking. Uh, there's a guy at Villanova University, Patrick Markey, who's been doing some recent research, looking very specifically at crime rates and violent video games and violent me- and violent movies as well. And uh, some of the stuff that he's been producing. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, knew, I think people are kind of aware at this point that youth violence has been going down for about 20 or some years. We're actually at um, about the same levels of youth violence that we had back in the 1960s, so all that kind of rise in youth violence we saw by 1993 has kind of evaporated. So so people are kind of aware that there's this sort of inverse correlation between video game consumption, including violent video game consumption, and youth violence or violence in society as well. Um, but you can get a lot of ecological fallacies with that. You know, There's a lot of things that are correlated in the real world that don't mean anything. Uh, and, that, and that may very well be one. I always use the example, sort of the joke of looking at Beyonce's salary and global warming, and that you can kind of correlate the two, that Beyonce has made more and more money, the, the earth has gotten hotter, but you know you wouldn't say that Beyonce has set the world on fire. Some people might think she has, but, um, you know, but that would be an, that'd be an example of an ecological fallacy, basically. Uh, there's a correlation, but it doesn't mean anything. Um, what's interesting is with some of Patrick's work is he has demonstrated, and a few other people have shown this as well, that you see these almost instantaneous reductions in violence in society when big games are released. So, like, when G- Grand Theft Auto 5 comes out, like, the next day, you see a reduction in violence in mm-hmm. society. So it, it sort of ties it together, and temporally, a little bit more closely, you know. Um, and, and the question, of course, is what to do with that information. It's still, you know, unclear what the mechanism of, of that drop uh, is. And so, I mean, like, the two competing theories, of course, that people would... Bring to their mind is one is the old catharsis theory, which is sort of the idea that people sort of burning off their aggression. Um, that has been an incredibly unpopular theory uh, in social psychology in particular. You know, social psychology has really gotten involved in more the other way of thinking, the, the modeling. So, catharsis theory has really been, you know, um, like heresy almost, in at least in social psychology, um, which doesn't mean it's wrong, it just means that it's not very popular. Um, the other, the other theory that is raised quite often, something called routine activities theory, which basically, and, and probably is a is a bit of an easier theory to digest, uh, in that it basically just says that whatever impact video games have on us, even in terms of small-scale stuff, uh, whether it increases our aggression or decreases it in a small way, just the fact that it keeps people busy uh, and, and off the streets reduces aggression in society, because... All the psychopaths who run out and buy Grand Theft Auto 5 are now sitting in their basements playing it rather than kicking the crap out of somebody uh, on the street corner. So, in that sense, you know, even if there's a small mood effect one way or the other, that you know, preventing the sale of violent video games or violent movies, or at least preventing you know younger males from getting access to them, may actually be kind of productive. Uh, in the sense of now, you're releasing them back out into the streets, you know, with sound of music in one hand and a knife in the other hand, uh, you know, to be aggressive.
1: <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that's that's something I know I've heard uh, from from plenty of friends. Uh, is is taking that video game holiday. You know, the game's gonna gonna release, and so I've already called off a of work, or i I'm you know I'm not gonna go to school. I'm gonna you know I'm going to take that day off because I just want to sit home and play all day. Yeah. And, you know, that's it's not necessarily a hugely widespread kind of phenomenon, but I think it's. Uh, that does certainly illustrate a bit of that effect of that, well, if it's a big enough game and you know so many of your other friends are going to want to play it that day, maybe you all organize something. Maybe that there's that trend that everyone that you know, your social network kind of stays home, plays together, especially if it's an online game that you can play together. Um, and then that can, yeah, that's going to keep you off the streets, going to keep you keep you busy.
2: Yeah.
0: I like sports analogies, right? So I think this is a good one, right? When the Super Bowl is on, the world is pretty quiet. At least the United States is pretty quiet, right? Everybody's <laughs> yeah. watching that. But when the new Grand Theft mm. Auto, or New Call of Duty comes out, that's a an event. Like all weekend, mm. right? People mm, aren't leaving yeah. the house and different mm. games, you know, over, over the course of the year. People yeah, it the effect lasts a few days instead of just that one long afternoon like you see with all the Super right. Bowl.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. of course the Super Bowl and I, I don't mean to go off on a tangent but the Super Bowl was, was for a while the subject of a subject of an urban legend I don't know if you heard this urban legend about the super Bowl the idea was to the effective that supposedly domestic violence went up on the night of the Super Bowl but it turns out it's not true um, <laughs> but people were people were, were saying that you know I think they're basically trying to say that the super Bowl wires men up and then of course because they're all you know wired up then they would attack their wives or girlfriends or, or or whatever else but uh that turns out to be an urban legend uh, <laughs> thank <so>. goodness
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um uh Josue, do you have a, a question you're thinking of
0: you want me to ask something while you review your notes
2: subtle production hints
0: (laughs) uh, kind of that that same question of interesting things that have happened recently i mean i think sometimes even for there's so much video game research out now um just so so much to consume there was one uh i don't remember who the who who uh wrote it who published it or even what journal it was in but i remember it was kind of mid last year and it, it very easily explained that um Gaming for a, it, it, it talked about this amount of time that you're gaming, right? Mm-hmm. And then it said, "Well, after if you're playing more than three hours a day, yeah, it's a problem. Why? Because now you're you're probably not eating, you're not showering, you're not sleeping. You know, it's affecting your hygiene, your your mm-hmm. your outside of work and school stuff. Yeah. And it was so easy to it was so good to have that to explain to audiences that that don't really." Um, you know they're still learning about this they still have all those uh, very bad uh, uh opinions about about video games and it was one of the simplest uh, things to explain and nobody had questions about it after it was like, "Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense yeah, yeah, yeah. once you explain exactly what the effects are those those were some that people could really relate to and i'm I'm looking forward to to kind of it being easier. you know the more research we have, the easier to we'll have those meta meta studies that will really make it much easier for us to explain, because I think it, that for us who, who are um, fluent in video games, uh, when mm-hmm. we're talking clinically, it's still difficult to kind of make my case.
2: And, um, right,
0: right, yeah. And I don't have that much to, to, to go on. that's really easy to, to just explain.
2: Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, I'm not sure exactly which study it was. There was one that you made me think of it when you were describing it. There's a, a fellow by the name of Andy Shabilsky uh, who's at Oxford University in in England, uh, and he just released a study about maybe the time frame you're talking about it was in the journal Pediatrics, uh, and he basically found kind of like described like a dose effect that if uh, for kids that I don't I don't remember what the hour cutoffs were exactly, but it's kind of like you're saying like three or four hours or more, um, those kids had slightly worse outcomes. There wasn't wasn't a huge deal. I mean the effect sizes as we call them were very very small, um, but the worse outcomes tended to be so kids that were sort of in the middle that were playing maybe like an hour or two or, you know, maybe two and a half hours a day were actually doing the best. Uh, and the kids that were not doing well were the kids that played excessively, so they like could say like three or four hours or more, and the kids that weren't playing at all also were doing very poorly. Uh, well, I, I shouldn't say, again, the effect sizes were small, so, but relative to the other kids, it, there seemed to be this kind of like, you know, inverse curve or U-shaped curve Um, that you would see with video game use. And that's been shown in a few other studies as well, the same basic thing, that on the one hand, excessive gaming, you know, tends to be a risk factor, although small negative outcomes. And like you said, probably because, you know, the the people aren't eating, they're not, you know, engaged in hygiene, they're not doing the homework. Um, But interestingly enough, there's also this effect we see that the kids that don't game at all, that also seems to be a risk factor for... Uh, a variety of negative outcomes, both like internalizing problems like depression and externalizing problems like behavior problems and such. And the way I've heard it described is, again, probably not that it's causal, uh, but rather that these kids are just so at the extremes of normal behavior that it's really just a, a red flag for other stuff that's going wrong, you know, perhaps uh, in their lives. So video gaming at this point is so ubiquitous among kids that for the few kids that don't game at all, it's just so strange uh, that they're just so outside the norm that it could be an indication that they're outside the norm in other ways um, as, as well. So it's sort of interesting that way we kind of, you know, a lot of parents are probably used to thinking of, you know, oh, my kid games, you know, playing video games. Is that a risk factor for problems? And then maybe not quite used to the idea that if your kid doesn't play video games at all, that also can be a marker that something unusual is going on, you know, for your kids. Um, so, yeah, so there, there have been a few studies that have kind of, you know, shown that inverse U, you know, curve um, between video games and problem behavior. Um, and, again, probably because it's an indicator of kids that are very much on the outs- outsides of what's – normal for their their age category. Um, you know, at this point, particularly among males, I mean, something like 95% of, of young males, whether they're teens or young adults, play video games. Most of them play violent video games uh, at this point. So it's a very, very ubiquitous activity. So, um,
1: you
2: yeah,
1: know... I mean, so, so much of what we look at when it comes to psychopathology, of course, is going to be looking for atypical behaviors at all, yeah. right? So as you mentioned, if there's something that 95% of the population is doing... Um, there can be a certain certainly just fine explanation as to why you, you know somebody might be part of the five percent that isn 't but it would still be it would still raise a curiosity right of like why is it that so many are are doing this and you are not? why do so many people have this emotional reaction to this kind of a prompt and you do not why do so many and so on and so forth um, uh, one thing I, I I wanted to ask about too was um, curious if you have uh, if you have an opinion on it was um, a uh, uh, an issue that I sometimes hear raised from either parents or clinicians is around this idea of um, immersion and in video games and like the, the you know realistic nature of, of you know graphics are getting better and and uh, sound quality's gotten better and all of this and, and could that be making things worse? And um, I'm thinking about a uh, the two meta analyses that were done by Craig Anderson that mm-hmm. in uh, you know although the effect sizes were small. It's 2001 meta-analysis compared to the 2010. The 2010 one had smaller effect sizes. And so I think about what games were typical in 2001 versus the advancements made in 2010 and games arguably getting a lot more complicated, a lot more complex, greater graphics and all that. Mm -hmm. Yet, if if the the meta-analysis is meta-analysis was was done accurately, it seems as though the effect size is going down despite increases in immersive uh, games being popular. So I'm curious, um, I know again we're talking about somebody else's study, but that I'm curious if you have an opinion or or kind of a feel on things when it comes to, um, you know, if somebody says games now are much more realistic, so doesn't that make it worse for for my kid or somebody else who plays them?
2: Yeah, that, that that's a, you know, an idea, of course, that's been circulating for quite a while, and it tends to get raised a lot, particularly in the early 2000s. It was raised quite often when there was legislation trying to regulate the sale of violent video games. So that was oftentimes one argument that was raised politically quite a bit, particularly because you would have to try to defend these laws to argue why video games and not books and why video games and not television, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Um, so that's why that argument became quite popular, but it was, it was never supported uh, empirically. So even if you take the research at face value and, as you kind of said, assume that it was done accurately, and there's actually a, a number of reasons why we should not assume that it was always done accurately, uh, but even if we t- assume that it was done accurately, that there, there never was any evidence to emerge to support this idea that video games were any different from reading the Bible you know, in effect, uh, that there's, you know, a study out there, for instance, that suggests that reading passages from the Bible increases aggression in much the same way that video games supposedly do. And I don't don't think either of these studies are are accurate, but, you know, if you sort of take them at face value, if you're the sort of person that's arguing that we ought to have warning labels on video games, well, we ought to have warning labels on the Bible, the hindu Ramayana, and all these other religious texts as well uh, that contain, you know, violence in them as well because there's no evidence, you know, even with this research being taken at face value, that video games had any more impact uh, than, than anything else. And again, if you kind of look back historically – there's always some sort of rationalization for why the new media is different from mm-hmm. what we've ourselves come to accept you know so with with movies it was that it was visual you know with with dime novels that's that they were cheap and easy for the masses to get for television it was that it was in our houses and be available every day you know so everything's kind of got some sort of reason why people think it's going to be worse than what came, you know, before Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Actually, got the emergence thing too. Uh, you know, talking about geek culture and all that sort of <laughs> stuff. That uh, you know, that was a big thing over in the 80s. You know, that they thought Dungeons and Dragons was going to cause, you know, murders, suicides, mm-hmm. psychosis. Uh, everything else, because exactly what you say, that people that play that game, and I, I'll be very blunt and say that I enjoy playing Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games myself, that, mm-hmm. you know, you actually are at sort of, you know, theoretically acting out the character, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but that's kind of how people perceived it, mm-hmm. um, and the idea was that some people were going to be able to, or, or going to have difficulty blurring those lines between reality and fiction, but in reality, of course, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons players are among the most passive Individuals, you know, uh, you know, out there, and there, there never emerged any evidence that they were committing suicide or developing psychosis anymore than everybody else does. Um, you know, in fact, if anything, they tend to be higher intelligent individuals. You know, sometimes they be, you know, a little socially awkward and such. But, uh, but even that's probably more of a stereotype than anything else. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, again, people can construct these narratives, um, you know, to to explain why new media is particularly bad, but Historically, those narratives have never worked out in in terms of empirical evidence uh, to uh, support them and such. And even, you know, you're talking about like the meta-analyses that, uh, you know, there's increasing evidence that even those small effect sizes we see from these meta-analyses tend to be due to things like publication bias. So Mm -hmm. it's just easier to publish studies that, particularly when our society is in a period of a moral panic, It's just easier to uh, publish studies that support the moral panic that find significant effects, if you will, than those that don't. Uh, And that's been a a problem throughout psychology. It's been a problem throughout social psychology. It even does affect some therapies, probably not as effective as we think they are. Uh, Certainly some psychotropic medications have proven to not be quite as effective as we originally thought they were. Um, because of publication bias issues, so, you know, and it, and it has, you know, it is now known that, you know, even these, uh, particularly the 2010 meta-analysis, you know, we now know that publication bias was an issue in, in that one that, that uh, and, and selection bias as well, that uh, a number of studies were left out that were null studies that should have been in there. Um, And uh, and there also were clear publication bias issues in there as well. Basically, the sample sizes correlate with effect sizes. Uh, It's getting a little bit inside baseball, but um, Mm -hmm. but that's how you can kind of detect it uh, somewhat. So um, the effects are probably smaller than than in reality, probably close to zero than even these meta analyses have, uh, you know, revealed over time. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a common thing you hear described quite a bit. But there's nothing that's ever emerged to support this idea that the immersive nature, the interactive nature of uh, video games made them any different. Um, and, and even for people, who, like I said, or at least as far as we can tell at this point, even for kids with pre-existing mental health issues that you think might have more difficulty with reality versus fiction there doesn't seem to be much evidence emerging that even that group of kids have difficulty uh, with video games or video game violence compared to uh, normal kids. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. I got something, I got something.
0: Yeah, go ahead. (laughs) You you mentioned Dungeons and Dragons and uh, I know a couple guys in Seattle who actually run social skills groups through Dungeons and Dragons, they act as the DM and they actually use it uh, as a therapeutic yeah. tool. And I use video games in my practice. I, I I give game prescriptions. I talk about that. And but I actually use them in in my practice uh, at, at, with all ages. So like, what is the research telling us about that? About our generations? You talked about that cutoff of the age, right? So forty six and under, are they embracing? Um, video games as a therapeutic tool, not just, I mean, commercial yeah. video games or even making games for that purpose.
2: Yeah, there. Yeah, I think you tend to see, um, you know, that generational divide, like you said. So there, there have been, you know, there's a psychiatrist at uh, uh, Harvard University, uh, Attila Serenoglu, who's argued for using video games, kind of like the way you're describing it, that, you know, that that's one possible tool that clinicians could use um, in in therapy because, of course, you're basically going to where the youth is, you know, to where their world is and trying to interact with them in a way that they're comfortable with as opposed to sort of dragging them onto the stereotypical couch and, you know, and trying to get them to talk about their mother and whatever else, being quite stereotypical there. But, um, you know, so, but and, and again, there are probably a certain number of blocks for some therapists in there that, of course, some who are not gamers themselves are going to worry that, I have no idea how to play. So, uh, and of course, that happens with parents too, right? I, I know how, I have no idea myself how to interact with my, with uh, my client uh, or my child, if it's the parent, um, you know, in that venue because I'm going to look like I'm completely, you know, trying to, uh, you know, play these games, you know, with my client or, or, or child. So I think that's one. Of course, again, the stereotypes of games of being violent, causing aggression, that's going to be another block, you know, for a lot of people, it's going to prevent them from using it, um, you know. So so there again, I think you see that for younger, you know, scholars and younger clinicians, they're much more comfortable using these types of mediums. Um, when interacting with their clients or patients um, than are uh, you know, older clinicians. Um, and, and Again, it, it's part of, like I said, it's, it's just that you know, these younger folks have grown up with this media, they're used to it, they're comfortable with it in their own lives and such. You know, they fear it less because by using it, they can see what effects it does or does not have on themselves or their peers or their own kids. And, and they're more comfortable using it, you know, themselves in their own practices and such. And I think you, you'll you see that, you know, that as both clinicians and scholars age up into sort of the power structure, and for that matter, even junior politicians that age up into the power structure, um, that people will be a lot more, lot more accepting of incorporating video games into things like education, into things like, um, you know, therapy um, and, and probably a lot of other avenues as well. There are a lot of you know, games for change, you know, serious games that are developed to you know, try to promote certain social goals. Uh, and such, and I think we'll probably see a more use of those. What will probably happen, however, is that then somebody will come along and invent a new technology that we don't use and we'll panic about that just as much as our parents, or grandparents panicked about video games. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, that tends to be the, the cycle that, uh, you know, we, we get into. I mean, uh, probably, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I hate to try to predict the future, but, of course, like, things like the Oculus Rift, you know, which are not really commercialized yet, um, but things like that, perhaps, will be the next thing people will panic about. And you're going to start to see, okay, well maybe video games really were not that bad after all. But what about these things? These things, if you're actually <laughs> really immersed into it, right? You think you're in the world, and, yeah, and then that'll have to go through its whole cycle. And by that point, people will be doing like straight computer implants into their brain. I don't know, you know, it's kind of a shadow run type of stuff. but. Uh, you know, there'll always be some sort of, you know, unless the zombie apocalypse hits and technology ends, you know, there's always going to be some sort of escalation of what's available through technology, and as older folks, you know, and I'm probably about ready to start heading into that age category, uh, you know, as the older generations are just have difficulty adopting the new technology, they're going to be much more afraid of it. So, uh, unfortunately, it is a very repetitive pattern, um, and even when I teach, I teach a class in media psychology, and even when I ask my students, you know, who are younger than me by a generation, I kind of ask them, you know, so are you, know, are you okay with these things? And they would say, yeah, yeah, these things are cool. You know, how do you think you're going to be when you're 50? You know, do you think you're going to be okay with whatever the new technology is then? Or do you think that you as a generation are just much more accepting of, you know, much more liberal in terms of your acceptance of new technology and new media? So it's a very difficult question to, add, to, to, to answer. You know, and I think they always have. They always kind of like to think of, oh yeah, yeah, we'll kind of roll with the punches and you know, we'll we'll be good. But historically, yeah. it's not how things work out.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. You know? Everyone's got their <laughs> thing. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's uh yeah, as you mentioned, there's been um, TV shows, there's been uh, comic books, of course, and and yeah, every every kind of different media, something that's going to catch you know get, that kind catches fire and gets gets wildly popular is going to get the heat that comes with it too, of course. Yeah. Um. So, uh, in, in mentioning that, talking about, like, how, um, I was mentioned earlier how video game research is becoming really popular, too, and, and um, there's a, an article that I pass out to, uh, I teach, one of the classes I teach is Intro to Psych, and when I'm, you know, knowing that out of 35 students in my class, there might be, um, you know, five to 10 who might be kind of curious about psychology, but otherwise it's kind of, you know, filling that, that, that gen ed requirement, um, but there's a there was a great article from I think it was GradPsych uh, from about two or three years ago that was highlighting the the need for psychologists in video game development or video game design of you know how do we kind of um, describe like how do we uh, understand what fun feels like and what are what can we do to a game so that people want to keep coming back or want to feel rewarded by it and and all of that um, and along with that. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's admittedly just kind of a, a cursory kind of uh, search that when I look through um, uh, PsycInfo, breaking down by decade, uh, doing a search term of just the word video game, um, in the 80s, you know, it returns about like 190 results. In the 90s, it returns like 240 results. 2000s, we see like 950. Mm-hmm. And And what I love was like the first three years of this decade, We've already surpassed that. We're already like when I did a search in like 2013, well over a thousand. You know, and so we blew away the last decade already. So it's like it feels as if the the field is really blowing up and it's really getting um, a ton of attention. And uh, I'm, I'm, you know, and what I appreciate is that as as we've been talking, you've been able to kind of mention a study here, a study there by different researchers around the world that are really kind of. Examining video games from a very unique perspective—that it's—I love that it's going beyond just does it make you violent or does it not? Does it make you social or, or you know pro-social, anti-social, asocial? Um, you know that it, they're getting really kind of curious around what about criminal behavior the next day? What about you know uh, how we relate to things? And so anyway, I, I yeah I love that that seems to be kind of a, a, a byproduct of all of this is that so many different questions now are being examined. Um, is, uh, uh, of curiosity, is, um, does part of your work uh, include bringing on um, graduate students to do work? And, and if so, like, do you, like, what do you see kind of within your department of, um, like I guess as a, as a media researcher yourself, do you feel like you have an effect on either graduate students or other uh, faculty in terms of their curiosities and kind of like, you know, around the uh, area of video game research?
2: Yeah sure that's a, that's a great question. At, at the university I'm at now, Stetson University, our our department is really very undergraduate focused. So mm-hmm. so I do have RAs, research assistants, but they're primarily undergraduate research assistants, so, which is even in some ways, an even better opportunity to kind of fire, you know, some some kids up who may go on to graduate school and become interested in doing some really good research on on games or whatever they decide to do, uh, you know, research on. So, you know, so I do have Uh, co-authors on some of my publications who have been either my graduate students at my previous institution or now uh, undergraduate students, you know, where I'm at uh, presently. So, um, yeah, I I think it's a great opportunity to, you know, get people interested, students interested, and, you know, I I think it's a field that would benefit from a a wave of fresh minds and fresh ideas uh, in the field because, again, I think there there was uh, some stagnation in the field perhaps over this issue of of uh, the violence in, in video games and kind of trying to tie that to the mass shootings and all that stuff. Um, so I, I think the field would really benefit from, you know, a, a, a fresh influx of, of newer thoughts and newer minds and, and even from people who are, are more familiar with the medium using it in their own lives uh, and such. And, uh, yeah, and, and it, it always is fun to interact with, with colleagues and particularly, you know, colleagues in other areas that may not themselves do. Do much research with with video games, and and I think the you know one of the things that is really you know um, positive for me is to see even among older scholars how many people really are receptive you know to reconsidering their stereotypes, if you will, um, particularly when it's supported by data uh, and such. And uh, and I think I've seen that you know um, everywhere gone or spoken or in, in, you know. Um, so that's, that's very, very positive uh, to see, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, you know, where I'm at now, we have a couple other faculty members who also are also at least peripherally interested in video games. We're, uh, we're hoping to do one study in the near future looking at kind of the way that women are presented in video games, which is a whole kind of separate issue, and looking to see how that influences players, or maybe it does, maybe it does, doesn't influence players, right? Um, so, you know, com- combining some interest there and, and just uh, sort of seeing where that goes. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's always nice to you know, cross-pollinate with different uh, different ideas that other people have.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure, I remember when I was uh, shopping around my idea for, um, I did my dissertation on, on video game research, and when I would speak with my, uh, with my peers, my fellow students, um, there seemed to be this kind of reaction of like, we can do a <laughs> dissertation on video games? Like, is that a, I didn't know we, you know, had that opportunity to do that. And even now, speaking with some students who, you know, feel like they sometimes get kind of wedged into, um, you know, it has to be on depression, it has to be on anxiety, it has to be on this issue or that issue that is that's maybe obvious, that comes up a lot in classes, and certainly that work is needed, but when I think about um, graduate students who have the opportunity to kind of um, carve out their expertise and really kind of cap their, uh, their, their uh, you know, um, education experience at the doctoral level, that that's a wonderful opportunity, I think, to kind of uh, to look into something that's that they're passionate about, um, and if that's video games, that could bring about some pretty cool and exciting ideas. So anyway, just as a personal note, I think it's exciting to see when um, when students get kind of fired up around that of like I can do this major research project, and I and I can I can be on something that I enjoy, or it can be on something that I find personally <clears throat> fascinating. Um, So, yeah, it's cool. It sounds like it's at at your university that you kind of feel that, too, around at least the undergraduate students of kind of their curiosities and their their passions kind of getting fired up, too.
0: Right, yeah. And it's kind of neat. Go ahead. No, go
2: ahead. Go ahead, Chris. I was was just going to say, it is sort of neat, too, to see them at that age where they really are at that precipice of, you know, hearing so many things from their elders and news media and not being so sure because they themselves are using the media and they don't see, Mm -hmm. you know... you can kind of see where their experiences aren't relating to what they're hearing, and they're not quite sure, oftentimes, what to make of that juxtaposition. Of. And so, particularly for unders is really, it's a you know really unique time to be able to kind of talk to them and and uh, you know expose them to the data and then kind of let them make their own minds up about you know what may or may not be going on. So yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you.
0: No, and uh, to, to jump on that, it's so exciting. That, you know we're asking new questions now right like you said we were stagnant now there are new questions so what do you see any trends now that that seem to be uh coming up a lot in research and and also related to that like what questions aren't we asking yeah. that maybe mm-hmm. you know we that you you think about and, and nobody is doing that research yet
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I I think one of the shifts that is beginning to happen, and I'm hoping it will continue to happen, is, as as I mentioned, you know, over the last three decades of video game research, and this kind of goes back even to, like, television research beforehand, most people kind of focused in on what you might call a general effects model or something, even these terms like hypodermic needle model, or basically the idea that, that everybody would be influenced by media in the same basic way, you know. So that if you played a violent video game, it would make you more aggressive. So maybe it would make you, you know, much more aggressive than it would make me. But it would make both of us more aggressive if we played those games. So you might think that you play a violent video game to relax yourself, but you're wrong. You know, it's not working, and you you, you just don't realize that it's not working. You know. Um, maybe someone who has schizophrenia would make them much more aggressive than someone without schizophrenia, you know, they would allow for that, but everybody is affected in the same basic direction by exposure to this. Um, and, and that paradigm, I think, you know, I mean, obviously there's debate over it still, but I, I think very clearly has not panned out very well, you know, this idea of these sort of universal effects. Um, and there, there's been a little bit of movement, I'm hoping it will continue to kind of look at what we may call more idiosyncratic effects. So, the idea that different people can be influenced by media in very different ways, you know, so that, um, you know, maybe if you play a violent video game, you are relaxed, whereas someone else plays a violent video game, and they may actually be agitated, and a third person may not be influenced at all, you know, so that the same medium can have a very different impacts on different individuals. And... And by the same token, a nonviolent video game may relax one person, may agitate another, and may have no influence on a third. So, yeah, you know, this idea that we've really gotten too focused in on content and we need to really start focusing more on the interaction between specific media and specific individuals and how they mesh with each other uh, as opposed to thinking that everybody responds in the same, same way. I, I sometimes use the, it's, an, it's not really a joke, that is true, but I sometimes use the example that uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with the 1990s show Full House. Mm-hmm. You know, so you know that show makes me angry. You know, so <laughs> in, in no way, <laughs> in no way am I saying that media has no emotional influence on us. So yeah, you know, but it's just not as easy to tie it into moral content the way that we have tried to do in the past. So. I absolutely get angry sometimes when I watch media. It just doesn't tend to be violent media that makes me angry. It tends to be terrible media, like Full House. Uh, that I apologize for anybody who's listening who, who may actually enjoy that show. But for me, I, I don't find that show to be very good. Basically, you know, and other people can disagree with me, of course. But uh, and because of what I would consider its low production values and and, and scripting and such, it just irritates me to watch that show. Um, So that, in many ways, is more interesting to me that is, you know, how, you know, we may interact in different ways with media. And so I might watch The Walking Dead, which is an ultra-violent television show, and feel pretty relaxed and pretty calm after watching that and enjoy it. And it's a nice way of diffusing, you know, uh, I forgot about my stress at work or whatever else, and it just took me to a fantasy world for a little while, and I'm calmer now. But then it flips over to Full House, and I start getting agitated, (laughs) Well, that has nothing to do with the violent content that clearly is a interaction effect between a specific media source and a specific individual and where they're coming from and what they're hoping to get so I mean there are theories out there you know mostly coming from communications uh, as opposed to psychology um, although there is a psychological theory called self determination theory that kind of addresses how we we are motivated to play video games to make uh, to meet certain needs in our lives that are not being met through our real lives um, but uh, so, but there are a couple theories out there that really speak to how specific individuals seek out media. You know, media just doesn't happen to us, right? It's not like we're sitting around and, bam, someone, like, starts making us play a violent video game. You know, we go out and seek out media, um, and we do so because we think it will do certain things to us. You know, we may play a violent video game because we believe it will relax us. You know, we may go to see a funny television show because you think it will make us happy after a bad day. So, the idea that we are actively seeking out things to get an emotional response, you know, from these uh, sources of media. It may just be that we think it's going to make us happy. You know, we want to play World of Warcraft. But it's going to amuse us. Um, and and that kind of you know interaction effect is in many ways I think more interesting. Than the idea that we are all influenced in the same way by a particular, you know, uh, media source. It also, but it gets really complicated, right? Because it's hard to make a headline out of that. You know, Mm -hmm. what do video games do to us? Well, it kind of depends on who you are and why you played them. (laughs) Yeah, and and it's very, very different (laughs) from. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's not going to get a headline for the most part. And and also on the other side, it really speaks to this issue that. Even a concept like violent video game, in some ways, is kind of meaningless, you know, because it's assuming that a wide category of video games can be lumped together into a meaning, meaningful conceptual space. Um, and we're treating all of these things. And I think of it like with violent literature. I mean, violent literature includes the Bible, Stephen King, Catcher in the Rock, well, you know, The Red Badge of Courage, you know, um, Animal Farm, you know, all these different. Books, comic books, you know, they're all very different from each other. Shakespeare, they're all violent literature, you know, but would we really think of these things as occupying a meaningful conceptual space together that we would call violent literature? I mean, they differ in so many different ways. And that's the same thing with video games, right? So violent video games include everything from Pac-Man to Grand Theft Auto V and the way that we define it in the literature. So you go back to some of those studies that are in these meta-analyses that were done in the 80s, they're looking at Zaxxon, you know, Pac-Man, Centipede as being violent video games, and they're they're claiming, in some of these studies, I mean, the, the effects are not consistent, but the ones that do find effects, they're claiming that a game like Centipede supposedly makes us more aggressive in the same way that, you know, 30 years later, they're claiming that Grand Theft Auto 5 makes... The, the effect sizes haven't changed, mm-hmm. you know, over or, you know, or, like I said, maybe if anything, they've gotten a little bit smaller. Uh, mm-hmm. Over the course of this time, so um, you know, I think we really have to concept or reconceptualize what we mean by media or the media experience. And and uh, is very satisfying to talk about these like broad categories like violent television or violent movies. When in fact, there again, I mean, we're really lumping a lot of material into one you know big conceptual space. When in reality, that's a very very awkward and I would argue unscientific way of really thinking about some of the uh, the forms of media that. They were so so
0: uh, going deeper into that hole, um, like to use your Full House analogy, right, you, you <laughs> broadly said that you don't like Full House, right? Well, yeah. maybe it was just, you know, season three through five, or you didn't like Uncle Jesse, you know, and every time he was on screen, <laughs> you hated it. So with video games, I ask myself those questions all the time. I'm like, wait a minute. Does... Uh, resolution have anything to do with like how it's affecting you so the frame rate or the screen size or are you playing with surround sound as intended by the creators of the game are you playing with headphones uh does the difficulty level have anything to do with it is your screen calibrated properly did you have this setting did you have that setting like uh we could get into so many details um and many times I, uh, I'll, I'll read a research article, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, but what, what variables did they put into the game exactly? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do you, yeah. Do you see that happening enough, or, or do you think that needs to happen more, or is it happening, and I just haven't
1: seen I, it yet? I want to. Can I piggyback on that just a tiny bit too? Was um, there was a, a study done? Uh, I remember where it argued that in order to uh, examine whether a violent video game made you violent or not, they had to. They wanted to isolate. Um, the frustration that someone experiences yeah. when losing, so they gave the person unlimited ammunition, unlimited life, they, like, made uh, everything super easy for the person. I think by the time you do that, you've now, your research on that game, that game looks nothing like the game that you would pick up off the shelf. Yeah. Well, how, how would, how is that valid at all? But, yeah, that's, um, yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a, those are some some great points uh, that are in there. It, it's important to point out point out in general that the, you know, particularly the experimental studies that are done with with violent video games don't look like real game playing at all. I and mean, that that is absolutely the case. You you yank college students for the most part into an artificial laboratory and you have them play for usually like 10 minutes or 15 minutes is pretty typical um, alone, um, you know, in a very artificial setting and then. Then they start to get into the game, then you yank it out of the hands, and you ask them how pissed off they feel. You know, So not surprisingly, sometimes they're quite angry. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that's emerged, you know, and I'm hoping that I'm not wanting too far afield of your, of your questions, but one of the things that's emerged is in a lot of the studies, they've had, they've had a lot of problems with the games being mismatched. Um, so they would have you know, people, some people would be randomized to play a very complicated, violent game, like you know, something like Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty. Whatever, and then they would have the control condition. that people were randomized to play the non-violent game. They'd be playing like Tetris, like that. Okay, so seriously, I'm not even exaggerating. Look, I've seen these you know, studies come up. You know, so uh, okay, so one's violent, one's non-violent. I got gotcha. you. But the games differ in so many other ways that you know Tetris. Not that I'm very good at it, but Tetris is fairly easy to learn. It takes you like 30 mm-hmm. seconds to get it. You know, even if you're not really good at it. Getting the mechanics of it, whereas you know something like you know Call of Duty probably takes you 20 to 25 minutes to really get through even the tutorial, you know to figure mm-hmm. out how to shoot and move and aim. And when you bring in random college students, most you know probably haven't played that specific game at least yet, so they're all or most of them are newbies uh, at playing that game. Mm-hmm. So that you're you're throwing them into the game; they don't know how to play it, and they're finally starting to get used to the controls after the 10 to 15 minutes, and then you yank the controls out of their hand. Well, yeah, they're frustrated. You know, so that's mm-hmm. where. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the frustration study, I think, again, he's probably talking about a study that um, Andy uh, Shabilsky, same guy from Oxford, did, which uh, was just published this year. Um, he was trying to control for that, by, you know, sort of manipulating frustration in the games and manipulating violent content in the games. And, uh, and what he came to was the conclusion that uh, it really is frustration that increases aggression, not violent content. Uh, so that if you increase the frustration level of the games, um, then people start to get pissed off, not surprisingly. Um, so, but, yeah, that, that really does get to you know, what you're, you know, I think you're saying, is that in a particular study, if a particular study is studying you know, one or two different video games, to what extent does that generalize to all video games that are out there, even ones that have violence? I think it's very difficult um, to do that especially when you consider the artificial nature of the video game experiments themselves. Uh, You know, the the people there just aren't playing the way that people play in real life. Mm -hmm. And then it's usually not hard to figure out the purpose of the experiment either because you have people play these, you know, violent video games, and then you give them some opportunity to be violent. Not violent. I mean, we don't have people beat Mm -hmm. each other in the lab, obviously. (laughs) but, But you give them some sort of opportunity to be aggressive, at least in a minor way, and, you know, it's very easy for people, particularly college students who may have taken classes like yours where you're talking mm-hmm. about all this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. to figure out, okay, I just played a violent video game, and now they're asking me to be aggressive in some way. Well, I think I got it, you know, what I'm supposed <laughs> to be doing here. Um, yeah. um, so, you know, I want my extra credit, so maybe I will just kind of go with the flow to make sure I don't jeopardize anything. Um you know, so there, there, there is a lot of controversy about the, the meaningfulness of a lot of these uh, you know experiments and whether they find effects or whether they don't find effects. And, you know, I've done some of these experiments myself in, in fairness um, that is, is it is very, very difficult to generalize them to the actual play experience that people have and it's very difficult to generalize them to real life aggression either because the aggression is typically giving each other bursts of white noise that are mildly irritating. Giving other people some hot sauce that they may not like, sticking other people's hand in a bucket of ice water—one of my favorite ones, actually. Um, but if you think about something like, you know, gang violence—you know, uh, gangs don't run around saying, "Get off my corner," or "I'm going to stick your butt- hand in a bucket of ice water," right? You know, this is very different uh, from what is actually going on in, you know, the real world in terms of things that we you know, we're worried about.
1: You know, okay. and, and kind of jumping off that too. I'm I'm curious if uh, if you're familiar with a, a sociologist by the name of uh, George Gerbner and his theory of mean world syndrome. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something this is something I uh, actually my um uh, somebody on my dissertation committee at the time had turned me on to have, uh, to look into, and it's something that I feel like just doesn't get a lot of attention to is that idea that it's uh uh I love the way it was put was that um, people who uh, consume violent media don't worry that they are going to become a mugger, rather they worry that they're going to become mugged. And so mm-hmm. what it does is instead of um, if you know consuming violent media, it's not really like I'm going to be the bad guy and I'm going to become violent and aggressive, but more so I'm going to start looking at the rest of the world as thinking... It's probably yeah. more dangerous than it really is you know you never got to go out you can never go outside at night I shouldn't ride the subway at night I shouldn't like yeah. you know do this or that when really um, you're you're kind of blowing up the risk of, of yourself becoming yeah. victimized um, I'm curious if if you're maybe aware of uh, first like your general opinion on that but also then if you're aware of any research that might be looking into that in terms of um, uh, violent uh, video games specifically instead of, because I know Gerbner did, uh, uh, I think it was news programming and, and TV, Yeah, yeah. Um, that does maybe, you know, do, instead of violent video games making us violent, does that maybe have any effect at all on the way that we perceive the rest of society, that the world is more dangerous maybe than it really is?
2: Yeah, yeah a great question. I mean, it kind of taps into the, the cultivation theory is you know, it's kind of part of all that, you know, the mean world and all that. Um, mm-hmm. And it's actually fascinating if you if you read you know so that that theory you know cultivation theory um, was also very controversial um, you know even when it, even its heyday if you read some of the old articles uh, between him and, and some of his critics it's always amazing how you know I think as other people have joked how aggressive aggression researchers can be you know mm-hmm. so there are these great you know like angry bad <laughs> did I leave off there. <laughs>
1: Okay, uh, you said that the uh, okay. uh, uh, violent me- uh, researchers who research aggress- aggressive media or violent media are aggressive themselves, and and, and that was that was the last I recall.
2: Okay, yeah, I, I think uh, my, my Wi-Fi probably was cutting off there a little bit. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and other people kind of react on that. And, and of course, there are, there are some very wonderful people on, on both sides of the debate that do, do research on, you know, aggression and such. But you do, it is funny, you do sometimes see these... You know, very angry debates pop up, uh, and of course, it happens throughout social science. There's nothing unique to media studies. Um, but um, yeah, so you know, there were these kind of like you know controversies over cultivation theory back when it was you know being you know the mean world syndrome. Um, you get me, okay, still?
1: Yeah, there was a little hiccup, but now you're back.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, I thought, I thought I saw a little pause on the screen there. Um, the biggest offenders seem to be things like Fox News. Um, and you know news programs that exaggerate um, crime. Uh, and I have like when I teach media psychology, I have all these great examples of these like news clips of you know could this happen to you? You know it's kind of like that that sort of thing. You see sometimes you know in news programs. Um, and it seems that people respond more to news than they do to fictional media for things like getting their beliefs about, you know, violence in society. Uh, and probably for obvious reasons, people think the news is true, you know, which, you know, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, right? Um, but people kind of buy into it as being non-fictional. Uh, it's also kind of why you see advertising has more of an effect than fictional media. So you do see, you know, some some consistency between advertising effects because it seems that like people actually buy into that as being truthful um whereas with fictional media you don't tend to see fictional so people can watch crime dramas for instance and not really buy into the idea that violence is rising or that i'm going to get beat up if i go down the street but if their local news is you know showing violent crime after violent crime after violent crime you can uh see more of an effect but but there again too you see like these individual differences in effect so uh you know You tend to see it more often among people who are more anxious to begin with tend to sort of uh, buy into it. People who have been crime victims before, not surprisingly, tend to be much more sensitive to it. Um, And there's also an interesting effect that you find that the people who are least likely to be victimized are the most likely to worry about crime, so violent crime in particular. So we're talking about affluent uh, white females. Uh, tend mm-hmm. to be most affected by the sort of a like cultivation theory, as opposed to low-income minority males are least likely to be affected by you know these types of uh, of influences, which is the exact inverse of who's likely to be a crime victim. Most likely mm-hmm. victim of a violent crime is a low-income minority male, um, you know, and least likely is a high-income um, white Caucasian female. You know, so it's sort of interesting stuff you find with these types of fears about you know violence in society. But uh, but yeah, I think you know every every year about once a year the news media will come on and say, oh yeah, by the way, the FBI say crime is down this year. And the other 364 days, they show you whatever homicide they can find within a hundred miles uh, radius. So uh, that's what you can get off of, uh, of of news media is a lot of uh, it's, it happened, but it's not it's, it. They don't put the context into which it happened uh, you know very effectively to you.
1: Right, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that was it for, for kind of like the, some of the burning questions and topics I wanted to address. I uh, was just looking at the time. Um, host uh, Is there anything that, that you want to ask about, or uh,
0: So here's kind of a slightly
1: academically controversial
0: question, which you can answer however you sure. want. This goes to both of you. Um, it, with that much um, research available now. How do you both feel about how much of it is easily accessible and consumable by people? Um, For example, I don't work in academia right now, yeah. so I don't have my EBSCO account, right? And I can't uh, access everything that's available. And laymen, you know, a lot of people who aren't in in our fields have even less access to it, and they only get the the news bites, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how do you feel about that and what effect that is continuing to have on... The area of video game research—it's
2: not good, is it? <laughs> 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 quite bluntly. Yeah. It's uh, no, it's not good. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a phenomenon I've actually—where um, have I got it? Uh, in, in one article I've been working on, it hasn't been published yet. But I, but I, ca- I talk about something called death by press release, um, mm-hmm. and that you have to watch out that very. Uh, so press releases are not peer-reviewed, uh, so it's mm-hmm. entirely possible for a researcher to run a study and come up with some inconsistent kind of, eh, kind of results and blow it way out of proportion in their own press release. And it happens all the time. Uh, probably in lots of different fields, but it certainly happens in video game studies. Um, and part of it seems to be there's also, again, a, sort of a bias in the news media. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure you've heard the idea of if it, if it bleeds, it leads. You mm-hmm. know? So news media is much more likely to publish bad news than it is good news. So, I mean, you can kind of think, it makes sense, right? Your news headline mm-hmm. would come out and say, uh, violent video games don't really do anything, mm-hmm. you know. How many page clicks is that going to get, you know? Mm-hmm. Very, very few compared to violent video games and Sandy Hook, you know. Is there a link, you know, mm-hmm. is going to get a, a huge number of page clicks, you know, compared to anything saying, eh, It's not really a big deal. So, I mean, and and scholars respond to that. I mean, uh, and, you know, we're all human beings, you know, so I'm not trying to judge anybody by saying that, but they they do respond to it because we all like our, 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 you know, what we do to end up getting a little bit of attention in the public. Um, You know, our 15 minutes of fame, probably more like 15 seconds of fame, but, uh, you know, it's always kind of cool. So, um, you know, it's one of the incentives, I think, that has caused, you know, some scholars to be very quick to exaggerate video game effects, just like psychiatrists in the 1950s exaggerated comic book effects. You know, It's what society wants to hear for a while, at least at that, that point in time. And so scholars do, do respond to it. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's bad both in terms of what the general public hears, which can be a lot of bad and biased information, but it actually can be bad for the science as well in mm-hmm. setting up incentive structures that are not very helpful if we want our science to be objective.
1: Absolutely, and, yeah, and I would agree too. I think that when um, when it comes to research availability, uh, you know, there's there's the big push now for um, um, what's the term? Op- is it like open publishing or you know, yeah, open, open science? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and so to be able to have a journal be be available, you know, to to anybody. Um, I think if anything, it it helps. Uh, I think it puts more uh, responsibility on the researchers to know that. I mean, it, I mean, scientific. Research if in a closed setting is still going to be reviewed, and it still could easily be scrutinized, but I think that the the broader your audience potentially is, I think opens up more in a way it can open more scrutiny you know and I have a like for example I have a, um, a project I have some of my students do where um, their and their end work they have the option for it to be uh, published online um, it 's something that would that I see as being kind of contributing to the field and what I'm because at, upon my own reflection, I think about how if I submit a paper to a professor, I know it's just between he or she and and I, and I'm gonna follow the guidelines. I'm gonna do what I need to do to get that good grade. I'm gonna submit it, and then I'll you know okay, all is done. But if I took that work and I put it online, potentially years later, someone could read it, and then you know or, or you know ten people, a hundred, a 1, thousand people could read it. And then I get responses back, and people saying I like this or I don't like this. And now it becomes more of a dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can puts more responsibility. I feel like on myself to make sure I produce good work that is going to um, that can hold hold up to proper scrutiny. Of course, there's always going to be people who are going to look in and say, like, I just don't like you, and I think this is crap. You know, YouTube comments yeah. and whatnot are good examples. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I think that in a way, I think that it, if anything, it it puts uh, greater responsibility on a field to make their work more available because it invites that that, um, that critical critical kind of lens to say, you know, tell me, tell me if this doesn't work. And, and, you know, we need other experts to, to weigh in, but, you know, sometimes, too, it's, it's good to just get more eyes on it. Um, yeah. yeah, and it's extremely unfortunate that practicing clinicians um, either have to pay, you know, extraordinary fees uh, or just don't at all <laughs> to, you know, yeah. just don't even <laughs> access journals. Um, and can't keep up with the research.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, sure. is there anything else that um, either of you want to make sure that, uh, like, I think, like when we started, we talked about how this was originally kind of a guest speaker series for mm-hmm. the geek culture and therapy class. Um, mm-hmm. Chris in particular, is there anything that you want to say uh, to students who are openly engaging in these type of conversations, um, in a in a graduate setting, um, with a, you know the idea being a clinical application or the clinical uh, influence of uh, video games in particular.
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, you know, obviously, um, you know, probably the thrust of a lot of what I'm saying is is that uh, it's important to really read widely. And, you know, be aware with issues around media that, as we, as we know historically, a lot of bad information does circulate out there, and um, a lot of people have various agendas. I mean, obviously the video game industry has their own agenda, but so do, you know, moral advocates uh, have their own agenda. Advocacy organizations, you know, are fueled, you know, they receive donations by scaring the crap out of people. So, you know, politicians have their agendas and such. So... It's important to really read widely, you know, not just the news headlines, but get into as much as possible, into the data and into the research studies and see what people did uh, so that you can make up your, your own minds. I'm not, I'm not saying that every student has to agree with me and and, and say that video games are not harmful necessarily, but uh, you know, certainly get in and see what the data is and, 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 and be as informed as possible so that you can make an informed decision. Rather than simply relying on Fox News or MSNBC or things like that to give your information about, you know, video. I mean, yeah, I briefly mentioned Sandy Hook. It's a great example of that for a year and a half, um, you know, or actually probably about about a year, excuse me. Um, we all we were talking about was violent video games, violent video games, violent video games. You know, after the Sandy Hook shooting in in 2012, and you know, it turned out in the end, he played Dance Dance Revolution for the most part. You know, mm-hmm. and so after all those rumors that went on for so long, uh, you know, and I was even part of, you know, the vice president had these meetings in D.C., and I was part of them about talking about video game violence and stuff like that. Um, it, you know, it turned out to be nothing. You know, I mean, he played—he probably played a few violent video games, but no more than the average person did, and maybe less, if anything. He really loved Dance Dance Revolution, and you know, uh, obsessively, it, you know, it turned out. So it's, it's, the point is, is that there just is a ton of bad information uh, out there, particularly about emotional events like mass shootings, and it really behooves someone who wants to be truly informed to sift through those, you know, that bad information and really try to look at where the data is and and, and make it a much more informed decision. Um, Only come from looking at the studies that are out there
1: yeah and I appreciate too, again in the beginning when you mentioned the um, you know the, the the moral issue that that if a parent is morally um, opposed to a, a game that a game that we as clinicians should respect that and to say that that's you know that's not something that I'm not going to tell you how, where your moral compass should be oriented toward or, or away from and, and that when but when it comes to people who are coming to us for information and, they, and they're asking more more directly. I don't know. It's you know I, I'm kind of morally ambiguous about this. I you know I can see why it could be good, but I can see why it might be harmful. Can you as a, a therapist working with my kid tell me what you know what's going on? Um, the therapist ultimately, depending on the time that they've spent with the client, um, they're already working on things like we mentioned before, like depression or social behaviors, um, uh, domestic issues if they're present. All those things are already being addressed, and not only that, but um, as you said, to you know, be widely read in the research, so that if it's applicable, that you can pull from memory, you know, some of some of these studies to kind of inform your your decision or, or your recommendation or your you know, however you pass along your information, um, that it doesn't just come from one source or news media itself. Um, yeah. Cool. Good summary.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all I got. So, uh, Patrick, go ahead and. Uh... Take it take us take us out
1: okay all right uh, well thanks again uh, uh Chris, I really appreciate you spending time with us um, and uh, i I know my students will will appreciate you so I'll, I'll thank you on their behalf for now and um sure. Yeah, and thanks for just for your continued work in the field to be able to to uh, continue to help uh, seeking the answers to some of these big questions. It's um, it's just wonderful to be able to to kind of watch the the field grow and develop from your end of things, but also your colleagues and and, uh, and and you know just to watch the field grow and explode it like it is right now is just wonderful. So yeah, thanks again though for for working with us tonight.
2: It's my pleasure, and thank you for having me on today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. This was great, guys. Добавил